Welcome to episode 91B. Today, the one and only John Deitlitz joins us to talk about his second edition of a book that many of us love, The Seven Steps to a Language-Rich Classroom. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. In all of my podcast conversations, I have left inspired and my soul expanded. However, I have never been moved to tears until this interview with John. He also got teary in the conversation as well. Yes, John will talk to us about the seven steps, but he will do more than that. He will share stories that will bring you to tears. Now, on to today's podcast. If you are a friend of the podcast, you know that I love having Sidelitz consultants online sharing with you. Now I get to invite the founder, the CEO, the executive director of Sidelitz, John Sidelitz himself. Welcome, John. Thank you, Ton. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, we've been talking for years, but it's and I've been listening to your podcast for a long time with admiration from a distance. It's great to finally have this conversation. I think the first time we talked about it was about two years ago, right? Yeah, it's been a long time. I know you you emailed me and you were like, oh no, I'm really worried about the other people that you've had on. And I'm like, John, no, 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 no. I am just humbled that you're here because you get to facilitate an organization that brings the best of the best to us. And your books, I think it started with Carol's book, was so visually delicious. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I mean, like, I appreciate that. it was like the flip through, but it was very much like, um, it, I mean, your company is the only one out there that focuses particularly on multilinguals, but then you make it so beautiful. It's kind of like Jennifer Saravello's book, the, the reading writing book, but oh, you, yeah. you made it for teachers of multilinguals. And I was like, that's so amazing. I'm so honored and uh, grateful for your scholarship. You have impacted so many teachers and students. I really appreciate your commenting on the on the beauty of the books because to be honest, I don't have an aesthetic sense, but I love, I've always loved uh, beautiful books. Yes. And, and so I had to find people uh, like uh, our, 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 our lead graphic designer, Ann Charlotte, and our, uh, our, our production manager, uh, Anna Mattis, who have that beautiful aesthetic sense. And I've always been in search of people. And I know when it's, I know when it's not accessible, if, if, if a teacher doesn't pick up a book and think somebody cared about me, they, they cared about me enough to make this beautiful and to enough make it so that I can easily find things. I'm a busy person. I don't have time to read a dissertation. And Ton, honestly, I feel like that's our job. That's my job is to do the legwork, to do the research, to find the experts. And then may, and the teacher's job is to take what the experts have and then to, to, to really 
bring that into the classroom so that the kids come alive with language. It's not, and, and to make it beautiful and accessible, I, 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 that, I, that really, you just made my week. <laughs> Thank you, I appreciate that. Well, I always think about when I publish, I always think about I'm only publishing with silence because you make it just so beautiful. Oh, thank you. And uh, uh, I, I'm really excited that uh, this uh, se September 29th, we've got your book coming out, which is uh, the, uh, the DIY PD for teachers of multilinguals, which you're working on with, uh, what you have worked on <laughs> with, with Carol uh, Salva and uh, with Katie, it's really exciting to, uh, to see that this is finally coming to life. Well, they're the better part of the, of the partnership. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk, talk about when I, when I talk to teachers in Texas and I talk about uh, sidelets, they always say, oh yes, John. Oh, I knew him before he was this big star. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about, you have extensive experience teaching uh, multilinguals, but also Spanish. And now you own the, or you facilitate the organization. Tell us of all your experience. Tell us a story that has really informed your work today? When I share is uh, kind of a, a mission story that gets you on, you know, you feel like you're, you're, you're kind of marching orders, is a student I had who was named Francisco. And I was teaching uh, ESL at, at a high school and also uh, teaching history at middle, and high, middle school. And it was in a small district in Floresville, Texas. And I had this student that I taught in eighth grade and then I taught him again in ninth grade. And in eighth grade, uh, I, you know, teachers were kind of had a little bit more nurturing because he wasn't in high school. Yes. And there were a lot of, I, I hate to be direct about this, but courtesy seventies. Francisco was a hard worker. He was a good kid working hard, doing his stuff. He always showed up early, did his thing. And teachers liked Francisco cause he was likable. Um, and, uh, the, the, but the next year when he got into high school, uh, it was just too complex for teachers to have that relationship with him. Yes. He used to be finger pointy towards the high school teachers. But then once I taught high school, I realized it's, it's not so easy because of the number of students and the complexity. It's not easy to do that. And he was just really sinking. And uh, just side note, it's leadership that has to create those smaller communities. For the teachers just cannot do that without a, a larger system. It's really, really difficult. Um, but he was sinking like a rock. And I remember he came in one day and he was kind of down. And, and I, I shared this story before and I was talking to a good friend of mine the other day and saying, you know, it wasn't dramatic when he came in. He yes. didn't throw his head on the desk and it wasn't drama. He just very casually said to me, the school has nothing for me. There's just nothing here for me. And I remember talking saying, I'm here for you. I can help you and I can be here for you. And he was like, okay. I mean, it was more whatever than it was anything else. So. What then Francisco didn't come back the next day. Oh. He didn't come back the next day. And then he never came back. Oh. And I went to Lupe, our attendance lady, and, and, and I was trying all these things to get, figure out where he was and stuff. And, and I knew, you know, that his cousin went to our school and he wasn't very helpful. You know, basically he, so I went to talk to the principal and she said that he dropped out. Oh. Well, I had this image in my mind of what a high school dropout was. Yeah. because I was sheltered as a kid. I grew up in military schools overseas. So it was very multi-ethnic because it was in Japan. Right. And the majority of our students of the, at our high school, we only had four white males out of like 65 people. And so, <laughs> but it was, a, it was in the military and it was very, very uh, sheltered. Right. So that everybody who I went to high school with was in the military. Then I went to UT and, and I, I met 
you know, I met Alma, we got married, but then it was a Hispanic Anglo culture, but I still didn't even see her extended family. I didn't see it. It was there, but I didn't see it. Even after going to Mexico, all I saw was work hard, you make it, work hard, you make it, work hard, you make it. Whoever yes. works hard shall make it. Whoever does not yes. work hard shall not make it. That was my vision. Yes. And all of a sudden I have a kid and Francisco was working harder than any of my other students. Yes. He was working harder than, than, than Katrina, than Leticia, or even then I'm thinking of, of Jacob, all these kids who I taught who, who were quote unquote hardworking kids and they were, but they weren't working as hard as Francisco and he didn't make it. And the reason why he didn't make it, it was me. I was in New Caney ISD last week and somebody asked uh, if ELs newcomers are so uh, eager and they are, and they're such hard workers and they are, why is it that they often don't succeed in our high schools? Right. And it was a high school teacher who asked this sincerely and I got it at the beginning of the day and I said, I'll answer this at the end of the day because I have to think about this. This is a deep question. And I realized at the end of the day, I'll tell you what the reason for this is. It's called us. Yes. We are the reason. And so I went to, uh, I was getting a master's at the time at UTSA, at University of Texas, San Antonio. And I just kind of like was on a mission. I, I can talk about how that happened to me with history. <laughs> I got into before with teaching history, I got into Wilson County history and teaching kids the history of what happened to their families after the Mexican uh, revolution in Texas. And I mean, it was amazing with all these Latino families that didn't know their history and junior historians. I had this fire about history. I did not have it about ESL. I was asked to teach ESL because Ms. Porter came in and said, uh, our principal's like, hey, uh, do you want to teach ESL? I'm like, why would I want to do that? And she's like, well, your wife's Mexican, right? And I'm like, her family is from Mexico. She's like, you speak Spanish. I'm like, un poquito. <laughs> So I went off and got st rubber stamped to teach ESL, but I didn't, have an, I didn't have a fire about it. But Francisco, and I'm using Francisco as just one kid. It wasn't just him. Yep. I saw other kids. And I, I mean, I still think about it. I look for these kids on Facebook. And I don't know, I've never found them, some of them, you know? Oh. Later on, when I got better, Maria, uh, Maria Ruiz was a student with special needs who was a, a student who now we would probably call Slife. And I don't mind using her name, but Maria graduated and I had her after Francisco when I learned what to do and I learned how to do this better than the what was happening was better you know and I feel like even just just the ability to identify when student had a learning disability which was was just all of these things that was uh, that I learned about um, and what, what I learned about Francisco was that he was present in middle school and I would say he was even cared for in middle school Yes. He was not fully included right. in discussions, right. in assignments, even with so-called differentiation sometimes. It was more like, you do this. Right. I mean, sometimes differentiation became almost like segregation. Right, yes. It was, and I'm a big supporter of differentiation. Caroline Tomlinson all the way. I mean, that was my school. I grew up in that. But we, I, I, it also can't be that the the that here's here's what we need you to do to be able to graduate and we're not going to do things in eighth grade seventh grade sixth grade fifth grade that we know we're going to get you there we're not going right. to do those things right. uh that that's where i think that we we, we we have to think critically as teachers who aren't in high school about what are those kids going to be experiencing when they're in high school and so for me i got a fire about it. i went to UTSA. i had courses with dr mariela rodriguez who later co-authored our first admin book with us. I still can't call her by her first name. You know how that is? I still call Dr. Smith by his first name. Every time you say Howard, you just feel like 
it's blasphemy or something. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, John, it's been, you know, years, but he's, how, you're not Howard, you're Dr. Smith. Right. Um, but uh, fortunately, Dr. Monica Lada was not my professor. I met her at Region 20, so she's Monica, right? <laughs> but but I, um, anyway, so I learned about equity and I learned about that it isn't always if you work hard, you make it, but that we have to provide structures. Right. And the structures are not just at the at the societal level, which they are, and they need to be there. And they're not just at the campus level, but it's also at the classroom level. So that putting these structures in place is everybody's responsibility. And right. so for me was, how do I have a structure that gives kids the gift of language acquisition? How do I create a structure or structures, plural, that give kids the gift of language acquisition in my classroom? That was the first piece. And there were some influences like, I was taking a course uh, called Teacher Effectiveness Student Achievement, which is old. It's out of California. It was amazing from like the 1990s research, but it was thousands of teachers and they studied what are teachers doing with marginalized students that makes them succeed. And it was equity, equity, equity. It was like inclusion in how you, everything from touch, like how you, you interact with kids to space are you surrounding those kids to who you call on i had never even heard that before and we actually went as a team and we marked who you were calling on when we did the tessa training and that was when the i don't know poster was developed with me and my friend uh, clayton kilduff an art teacher at the time and we were like i'm not calling on these kids because it's terrifying because <laughs> i don't want to humiliate them in front of you so we were like what do we do and so we were like okay we developed this uh i made this poster and then I showed it to Clayton, like I said, Clayton, look at this. And so she, let's try this. And then uh, I never thought it would be like just standard teaching practice, you know, 20 years later, but it became a campus-wide thing. Like everybody, once I made the poster in Floresville, it started off with the history department, the ESL and the language arts, and then it spread. And then pretty soon the whole district, everybody had those, I don't know, posters. Then I went to region 20 and it became like our first step. And uh but teacher effective student achievement and then PSYOP was really, really, really influential on in me. Uh, I can't say enough about Dr. Echevarria and Dr. Short and uh, 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 Dr. Vogt. Uh, the time I spent with them on the PSYOP national faculty and just getting my understandings of EL research and inclusion and all of those things is uh, we are all in the shadow of, of PSYOP. And of course, uh, there's uh, Krashen and the idea of comprehensible input and that uh, I, we always, every single training I do, no matter how long I talk about comprehensible input plus low stress opportunities for output equals language development. Right. It's not low stress kicking through the door. It's low stress opportunities, structured opportunities where kids aren't gonna be terrified. If I can create massive amounts of comprehensible input and low stress opportunities for output in math, science, language arts and social studies lessons, K-12, and at the same time, create this inclusive atmosphere which welcomes kids culturally, linguistically with who they really are as people, then I don't just think I know that it works. There are so many things. Did you notice I kind of got teary when you started talking about Francisco? Like I actually almost oh. started crying because there are so many Franciscos in the world and there are so many Maria Luis in the world, Maria. And I guess what you're saying is, when you stop finger pointing at teachers and kids, you start looking in the mirror and saying, what are we doing? Right. What can we do? And then what, and then this, I also wrote down the limitation of grit. 
Oh yeah. Right. Cause like this, this concept, this narrative of like, they're not trying hard enough. And then we have to say, you're finger pointing at them. And we have to say what structural things and policies are we putting in place that's limiting their interactions, limiting their comprehensible input and not structuring their output. So um, I thank you for, for sharing that story. You talked about um, crashing. You talked about comprehensible input, but we have to now structure for comprehensible output. And that's everything in uh, the seven steps. Can you talk about the seed of seven steps and then go into talking about each of those seven? Well, I would, the seed was really uh, when I was teaching and we were trying to do TESA, Teacher Effective Student Achievement in an ESL classroom. How do I include all the kids in instruction? And, and then at the same time, we were doing the comprehensible output. And then we had this, this thing was, was, was really challenging. And I started doing these things in my classroom and then teaching my team how to do them. And then we had something that happened in the late 90s, early 2000s, started in Texas and spread throughout all of America called accountability yeah. and left behind. And at that point with like, oh, five, six years experience, I had more than, we had such high turnover in a high poverty school that we had, uh, I had more experience than anyone else in the building in history and I was a department chair. And so actually I was lead teacher. I call myself department chair to give myself an air of authority. <laughs> um, I had no authority, but uh, our, our curriculum director who was from Nacogdoches, Texas, which I don't know if you know Texas, but that's East Texas out by Louisiana. And Ooh. he would uh, come around and give me, and we were West, we were more like just Southwest of San, Southeast of San Antonio. So he would come out and give me a hard time and tell me, John, we have to get 90%. You just have to pop up that hood, get this car fixed. And he's my friend, uh, Don's my friend. So that's not, that is not picking on him. And so that is totally Don. But he used to come out and, and, and Dr. Ballinger, he, I still have to call him Dr. Ballinger. Right? But he, he came out and said, uh, you know, we had to get 90%. And we had our subpopulations in the 30s. And overall, our passing rate for the social studies assessment was 67%. So uh, at the same time, I was hearing all the stuff about language and uh, poverty, you know, things like Marzano was doing with, you know, the, the stuff about the different, uh, the quadrants about the, the number of words and stuff. And of course, now we know it ties a lot more with parents' education level. It's not necessarily poverty per se, but there's... Uh, I was seeing this with the kids I was teaching, that this was a language issue and not just for English learners, that this was actually an issue for, um, all kids are in some sense multilingual because they're navigating different registers. Yes. You know, kids are using a social register and they're right. using an academic register. And some of them could navigate those registers because they've been given experience in an academic register and the assessment is in an academic register. But my students in Floresville, not all of them, the majority were Latino, but we also did, that's not all the ones who didn't have academic register. I had kids of every race and, and even wealth level who didn't really have access to the language of the assessment. So fortunately I had all new teachers on my team, brand new teachers. Uh, and so I acted like I had more authority than I did. I asked our principal for a, an extra period off. I stopped teaching ESL, only taught social studies. And I, I would go observe them. You know, I, I would tell them, you need to have structured conversations. Yes. It was literally like a foreign language class in the sense, a high quality foreign language class. There was reading, writing, talking every day, sentence stems, reading every single day. There was at least one passage to read. There was reading, writing, talking, reading, writing, talking. And I was in there and I was really, really like, uh, 
maybe they experienced it as tyranny. <laughs> I mean, using a, 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 a air quotes. But they would call it instructional coaching. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I love my coaches out there. But unfortunately, I didn't have like all of the. Uh, this was I didn't have Costa and Garmson or Jim Knight or any of that kind of stuff. So I was just telling them what to do. But it worked, and they loved. They, we I still love Charlotte and Kevin, and those those folks are still cool with me. But we went from 67% passing with our subpopulations in the 30s to every single subpopulation above 90%. Wow. And that was what got me into training was I got a phone call from Jurdenton ISD where they were, uh, the principal's like, can you come show us what you did with your teachers? And honestly, I showed them too much stuff. And that was where my co-author for Seven Steps, Bill Perryman came in because uh, we started working together with teachers in, uh, Northeast ISD. And that was where we really refined it. We worked with teachers over like a two year period. And oh, it was three years. And the first summer it was this big. And the next summer it was this big. And then Bill and I went the next summer it was this big. And one time we had pies and cats. I mean, it was crazy with little acronyms. But and the QSSSA became something that really we kept refining what are the core central elements. Right. And then we go observe the teachers and say, are they able to do it? Are they able to do it? Because the question was not, what are are we, is, is what we're teaching the research-based? We knew it was already each of those elements was research-based. The question was, are they able to do it? And uh, eventually, once we got it down to where they were able to do it, which is around 2000, um, then I participated in a study with uh, uh, Dr. Castillo in uh, uh, where it was incorporated as part of a larger study in uh, uh, Arizona State University. And then we published the Seven Steps book about that time, the first one. And now we're doing this December, the 10th anniversary edition. And so we're really excited about, about that. And we had the, the research this year, our first year of the research, uh, which is gonna be uh, published online this summer in the online paper repository for the American Education Research Association. So we're really excited about that. We presented this year at AERA, the first year of our three-year study that we're doing, so. Right, and that's, that's the goal of this podcast to say, not just, oh, here are strategies, but it's to say, here are strategies. Here's what the research says about our strategies. Yeah. So we'll talk about those. But before we get there, I know teachers, teachers are in their cars and they're saying, wait, John talked about the I don't know posters. Can you talk about that before we go to the seven steps? Uh, sure. The I don't know poster is the, is the first step of the seven steps to a language-rich interactive classroom. Right. And it's teach students what to say when they don't know what to say. Right. And... Uh, the idea is that it doesn't have to be a poster. Uh, some teachers use posters. Some teachers don't do anything at all, but just the kids memorize it. And then they just go over it and over and over it. Uh, so the poster is just a very popular way of doing step one. And it's just a poster that says like, uh, uh, the first one would be something like, may I please have some more information? Yes. The second choice is, may I have some time to think? Yes. Or, may I ask a friend for help? And then, uh, uh, you have these different options and working with teachers, my favorite was not to sell them a poster, but to brainstorm with them what works in your classroom, you know, to make your own. Because if you're in a dual language setting and I'm writing them in Spanish for a second grader, it might be different than in a monolingual algebra class where they may have different kinds of things like that they may want to use, it's different. But the core idea is no one in your classroom ever is gonna be frightened for you to call on them. Right. And that you're going to communicate to the kids right from the beginning. This is why it's step one. I am not here to humiliate you. Right. I'm not here to embarrass you. I am here to support you. And guess what? This community here is going to support you. Right. We are going to support you. I, we do these four messages that we try to send to kids, which is 
And I think the first poster really sends them. You are important. Yes. What we are learning is important. You can do it and we will not give up on you. And I think if I could have sent those messages to Francisco, you know, I think I communicated to him, you are important. And what yes. we are learning is important, but that you can do it and then we will not give up on you. There weren't, there was just not a structure in place for that. And the first place for that structure for me is that I don't know poster because we set up a structure for, I'm gonna fully include you, I'm gonna call on you, but you never have to have forced output, right. which I think actually Stephen Krashen, after all these years, I really agree with him. Kicking a kid through the door on output, that doesn't really necessarily gonna help with it. You're not gonna help by forcing somebody, especially in front of a whole class and everybody's right. looking at them. Right. And, so you're creating an opportunity where, where I could, you know, they could say, uh, can I have some more information? If I see that student affectively is embarrassed, I can right. walk up and they can talk to me individually. Right. Maybe they're not ready to talk in front of the class or tal vez necesita hablar en español. You know, he can tell me in Spanish or use his device if he needs to, yes. I, but, but, but he's gonna be included and always provided that, that invitation right. to, to participate. Right. It's really about self-advocacy. Yes, yes. Right, absolutely. when kids can self-advocate, they can, we can teach them this, that they can take this skill, they can go to other classes because the time they're with us when we're in their classes is might be limited, but the times, the time they're with their content teachers is so much more. So they can right. advocate and say, hey, can you please say this again? I don't understand this part of the sentence. I remember teaching one of my students who, are duly, who was duly defined and as a, a multilingual as well. When I changed that, I taught her that, it changed the way we interacted because I got so frustrated with her because how she was like, she just wouldn't say anything. And I was like, you know what? It's not her, it's me. Wow. Okay, hey, Annie, I want to share you with this, you, this phrase. Uh, I don't understand this part. Can you say this part again? Can I have some more time? And then that changed everything when my interactions, because I stopped being frustrated with her because I saw with her through a more empathetic lens. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you, Tom, for sharing that. I know that when, when, when I first did it in Floresville, it was the middle of the year. So you're trying to change it to classroom culture. But within a week, I, I, I was less tense. Yes. They were less tense. Yes. There was, it was just like this tension was released from the, I'm not gonna be, because actually the Tessa, I really agree with this. I read online sometimes, some people call them equity sticks, which yes. we'll get to in a minute, right? But sometimes if you haven't put a support structure in place, randomly calling on kids, it's just, so unfair. Right. Unfair is not the right word. It's I, problematic. Stressful. Stressful. Right. Stressful. That's a good word. I couldn't think of the right word. You're just creating a lot of stress on the kids. Right. And when you know from Dr. Krashen, when kids are stressed out, the effective filter goes up right. and they're using all their cognitive resources to, to avoid the situation and not to, exactly. right. Not to understand. Right. That's exactly <laughs> it. Yeah. So you want to talk, let's talk about step two, uh, uh, teach students to speak in complete sentences. Yeah, so and this one I've gotten pushback from, you know, have students speak in complete sentences because the, 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 the way it, it, when you say have students speak in complete sentences, uh, in the book it says not all the time. Yes. This is, and I say that really clearly, and in the new edition we're putting it in bold. <laughs> I mean, as a pullout because occasionally I've had folks walk around and they want the kids, they feel like the kids have to communicate an academic register 100% of the time in the classroom. And the first thing I say is when I do that step, when I'm training it, I say, have students speak in complete sentences. What we mean is every single lesson, you're gonna provide a, an opportunity for students to communicate authentically yes. using academic register. Yes. 
you know, using a, a complete sentence in that way. You can also be social, when kids are like in a dual language program or I have newcomers, I, it can also be a social register or yeah. kind of a social English where the kids are communicating complete sentences because it's also challenging for our newcomers and our, our level ones and twos or newcomer intermediate students. They're challenged with that as well. So I don't want to exclude the social from the complete sentences, but the biggest part of the goal was to have some opportunities where kids feel safe communicating in academic yes. language, academic language. You're using that academic register um, so that it's not about kicking kids through the door again. It's about consistently, daily, every single day, they're gonna have that opportunity. Now the pushback I've gotten from, from friends, good friends and colleagues, especially initially, less now, but initially was, isn't that forced output? And I'm like, no, it's an opportunity. It's a consistent opportunity. If it's forced output, it's not what we're asking you right. to do, to kick right. the kids through the door. But, and then the other thing I got was, aren't you overstructuring kids' language and you're valuing uh, a certain kind of language over another kind of language. And I said, what I'm trying to do is give what you just said, Ton, self-advocacy and a communicative ability to the kids that they're seeking, that they want. I wanna give them the ability to navigate all these different registers. And here's what I found. When kids are in a small group and you give them a good question, and we can talk about that a little bit when we get to step uh, six, you give them a really good question and they just start talking, talking, talking. Um, and the kids are just going off and they're talking and they start off saying, based on the information in the passage, I disagree with Calhoun because, and then they slide into social register because man, that guy was crazy. I can't believe the way he's thinking like this. And you see what he said over here? Here's what happens. Some kids have different social registers. Right. And they're learning to understand and respect one another culturally in that context. But the academic register becomes one more piece of that. And guess what? That's the one they're going to be assessed in in that classroom. Exactly. And if I'm not equipping kids to be successful on the, on, with what they're being assessed on, am I really doing them justice? I love, a great read is Lisa Delpit's Other People's Children. Have you, Other People's Children. Have you read that book, Tom? No, it's, I haven't. It's an old, but a good book. It's Other People's Children. And it challenged, it's kind of like, it, she talks about kind of like uh, teachers who are not from urban environments or, or, or teachers who don't have experience uh, working with uh, students of color or, and she, I, I remember reading that book and being very, very challenged by it and dialoguing with Dr. Lada about it, about how, wow, I have to be looking at respecting my kids' culture, but also giving them access, right? giving them the same keys that everybody has, you know, so that, that it's, it's not so flat. It's not so flat. It's about really honoring where the kids are. But to me, the complete sentences is because I have beginning intermediate kids that desperately want to pronounce. I was talking about this earlier. I had kids that when we did a survey at a high school here in Texas and we asked the students, the high school students, what's your number one goal? About 33% of the kids had said pronunciation, that they were embarrassed talking in front of other kids. They wanted to know how to say things. Well, if I'm not scaffolding sentence production all day long in science, math, language, arts, social studies, pronouncing, I use the language, we use the language, you use the language and providing that opportunity, then what happens? Well, the kids aren't able then to get what they want. What they wanted was to be able to pronounce correctly. What they want to be able is to be successful on the assessment. So I have to give them those keys, but I need to do that in a way that doesn't also shut them down or shut down their culture and enables the kids to, enter, we're getting to the other steps now, but to interact with a lot of different kids from multiple perspectives using various uh, uh, forms of, of language and various communities that they're bringing to the table. So 
I wrote down, um, I, what I love about this step is that you don't, you don't have to say speak in full sentences and go. You say speak in full sentences using these sentence stems and using these sentence frames. And when I see sentence stems and I see sentence frames, I see structuring, not just language, yes. but structuring thinking. Yes. Right. Yeah. When, when we say, for example, you just gave an example. When I read this article, uh, something that stood out was, right, or something that I disagreed was. So they're thinking about something they're disagreeing, or even you can say comparing this article to this article, right? And so the students are doing the thinking with the sentence stem. And I want to tell you, I always get pushback as well about language, like academic and social language, and there's a hierarchy. This is what I tell people, and I'm going to use your language. And I say, it's context. We want to have kids, I say tools, in a toolbox. Language is, there are, there's only one language by Ophelia Garcia, and that language is communication. We use different languages to be understood and to communicate. The language you use at a barbershop would not be the same language you would use at a job interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're using a language at a job interview, you might, that door might be closed. So you need a different key. You need yeah. a different key to open that interview door. But if you, if you were using that interview, interview language at a barbershop, the relationship wouldn't be there. You need a more uh, relational language. So that's a different key. So I, I just tell people, it's not about the hierarchy of language. It's more about different keys, different tools, using different contexts. You can't just have a hammer for everything. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's why I really don't want, you don't want to overmanage. You have to yes. really understand that it's about providing consistent opportunities Right. It's not about hypermanaging because right. that's when you start shutting down kids' different yes. registers. You can also provide opportunities with genre yes. for kids to use their own language uh, or their own styles of speech. Right. We did a lot of things like in the book, we have an activity called Prop Box Improv where the kids would just take stuff out of a box. I'd go to like the dollar store or Goodwill and just throw a bunch of stuff in a box and get there and say, act out what you just read using this. And there's very little structure except use these vocabulary words in some way. And the kids would use their own social, uh, what kind of home language, they'd use some Spanish and some uh, code switching and things like that when we were, when they would do these skits and they would be honored. They would be honored for the class because sometimes the anachronisms would be humorous, you know, using a modern language with something that's from way back in the past. Uh, and, and, and sometimes it'd be humorous. And some of my very best memories of teaching were in these activities where kids' authentic, linguistic, uh, personal, cultural selves would come to life in a place where their language is being honored, you know, and then they're able to do those kinds of activities. Right, you're just honoring the language in this. When you say help students speak in clear senses, you can still honor students' languages and cultures as Absolutely. you do that. Right. Let's look at step three, randomize and rotate. We've kind of talked about this a little bit about the... It's, it's some people, they call them equity sticks. I saw they weren't calling them that in the early uh, 2000s. We had these things in Texas called the reading academies, which was, I think the first time it was late nineties when I was first exposed to these. Uh, and it, it just randomly calling on students. It's it, and people have apps to do this or, or having a structure where I include everybody. Um, it is step three, not step one. Doing this without a structure is mean, <laughs> means too strong a word, but I've done it and it doesn't work. And you just stress kids out and you're making them uncomfortable. And, and I have to create an environment of real trust. Yes. And that is not just from the head, it's from the heart. They have to see in my eyes. I'm not going to shut you down. I'm not doing this thing. Let's see. What, who, what was one of the motivations for the author 
uh, using onomatopoeia in the second stanza, Leo. <laughs> and I draw it out just because I see Leo has his head on the desk and they're punishment sticks. That's not an inclusion thing. No, this is the thing. And I would tell the kids, these are my invitations into the great conversation. Right. Parker Palmer, who wrote The Courage to Teach, yeah. gives this idea of education is this thing that we're not leading, we're just participating in this grand conversation that spans through time yes. from the whole world, from every continent. There's this great conversation that we're all engaged in. And these equity sticks, when we're talking about a book or a poem, or we're talking about an event in history, we're inviting you into this great conversation. I mean, I love this imagery, you know, just kind of feeling like, 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 come in, here's your invitation. But when I, it's an invitation, again, it's not a kick through the door. And that's why we have our, I don't know, poster. Right. And we have our, you know, may I please have some time to think? And may I have some more information and those things? We have a structure there right. so that if you're not ready to go to party yet, you know, we can go get you an outfit. We right. can make you comfortable. We can teach you some little phrases you can use to socialize. You know, we can go get you ready for the party. We can get you ready for this conversation if you're not ready yet. We got some scaffolding we could do. Uh, John, since we're just at the first three, I'm already noticing a pattern. They're all integrated with each other. They're all connected. That's true. Right? Yeah, they, they really are. They really, yeah, they, they, it's, it, they, if you do them without the other ones, you sort of, you can really miss a piece. Let's go to piece four, using uh, total response signals, which your, your organization is known for. Yeah, we, we, we love these. Uh, the, the total response signals and... Uh, we were, I think Bill Perryman and I were the first ones to call them total response signals. And then uh, we started using that language around like 2010 or so. And then there were some great books that came out like uh, Total Participation Techniques from ASCD, which is a book I'd recommend to everybody. And there was a, uh, but the idea was uh, total participation that I'm gonna, and, and I, Dr. Fleener put this so well recently. I was asking people like, what's your favorite step? And he said his favorite was, uh, total participation. And he taught at uh, a, a really uh, high poverty school in San Antonio and really was able to bring up the science scores. And he thought that this was just essential. And this is where we use things like simplest to be like thumbs up, thumbs down, or show me how strongly you agree on a scale of one to five. One is strongly disagree, five is strongly agree. Or, you know, these different kinds of things would be our total response signals. So there are also things like whiteboards or, but the key to it is I'm gonna monitor every single student. You know, we just say there's three parts of total response signal, total response and signal. Right. Total means every student. Signal means there's something they're doing to show me their level of understanding. Uh, and then but they're responding with this signal. So uh, Dr. Fleener said the reason why he felt that this was his favorite was it said to the kids, I will wait for you. Oh, yes. He said it communicates that you are important and I will not give up on you. Mm. I'm going to wait for you, that you are totally included. And these again, are, are they're not like magic. You have to develop trust. And one of the things about trust was I can't say, okay, everybody raise your right hand. Put your hand down when you can finish this sentence. And it's something on the lower end of Bloom's taxonomy and I've gone over it and over it and over it. And I'm just really trying to just warm up the brains. And, and there's, there's Leo with his hand in the air. And I'm like, Leo, why is your hand in the air? I'm thinking this, but if I communicate to Leo even one inch uh, 
why are your hand up? I mean, we went over this. If he feels that from me, it's over. instead of thinking, okay, like I love what you said earlier, Ton, about uh, what am I doing about that student? What can I do differently? If I instead see, oh, I must have, I must have missed Leo somehow. And then I back up and say, okay, everybody put your hands down. Okay, so let's take a look at this again. And then I ask it again. And I don't give Leo that look. Then I build trust and they start working like amazingly. Once you build that trust, then response signals can really work really, really well. Uh, I just wrote the word trust and I circled it. And it's all about relationships. So it's, it, it's it not is. just about strategies. It's like kids are really, they feel stress being at a school system that they're maybe not used to in a, in a language that they're just learning. Yeah. And they need to know that we're not going to call them out or make them feel less than. Definitely in middle school and high school. When you make a kid feel embarrassed, you've lost them for the year. You know, I felt that when I went to the Toma la Palabra workshop with Monica Lara, because most of my Spanish uh, I learned from uh, being married <laughs> for 20, 29 years. And then also having uh, the uh, watching telenovelas and noticias and, you know, watching TV and stuff. So I don't have the academic Spanish. And I was in her workshop and she was teaching and they were all getting jokes too, because culturally I don't get some of the... Uh, because I didn't grow up with the same TV shows right. With, right. with all these different uh, things that they're all uh, uh, getting. And then when she called on me, and when she would use the steps when she was teaching, I was like so grateful. Like, because it was like when it was all structured. But when she just started talking a story and it would have all these cultural references in it, I'd be like, well, I was so glad she was using Siete Pasos, you know, for the whole training. Because when she called on me, I could say, Necesito más información, por favor. Necesito hablar con mi compañero. And it was totally acceptable. And I wasn't like, oh, he's the angloparlante, doesn't know how to speak Spanish. It was like, okay, he's just using the steps. And I was not humiliated because I wasn't. I'm not comfortable. I mean, I had some graduate classes that were taught in Spanish uh, and I felt the same way there, but I right. never felt comfortable like I did in Monica's workshop because when she was using the steps, I was like, man, if they had used that when I was in right. those classes, I wouldn't have felt so uh, constantly self-conscious and never wanted to volunteer. And so really you're saying these steps help kids participate in the way yeah. that you're comfortable. That's what step four is all about is right. everybody's going to participate. Let's look at step five, which is uh, using visuals, vocabulary, let me start over. Step five is use visuals and vocabulary strategies that support your objectives. Yeah, so this is the, the comprehensible input piece in a lot of ways. It's, and we stay in the book point and talk, like the, it's the concept linguistically about uh, indexing. Yes. Like you're constantly pointing and referencing to stuff while you're teaching. It's not have a visual, have a visual that represents a vocabulary word, particularly if you have beginning and intermediate students, it's Throughout the entire lesson, I'm constantly referring to things that are providing access points for ELs. I do simulations when I'm teaching uh, teachers who are learning to work with ELs. And I like to teach a little bit in, in German because there's not a lot of people that speak German in Texas. There's a few, but, but it, it gives them that experience or um, of not knowing the language. And uh, I use the, and I do, you know, if you can do one with visuals and one without. And yes. Uh, it's they, they get this experience of oh my gosh how when I was just referring to things and, and I said yes without pointing to the United States and presidents and then I just talk a little slower and point and I'm showing a one and a three the 
the United States vow, and I'm pointing to the United States, they're like, oh, first three presidents. Yes. They've got an anchor. They have an anchor. But when, when you do it without pointing, you're, you're losing it. And it says visuals and vocabulary strategies that support your objectives. So you've got the visuals, the constant point and talk. Vocabulary strategies is an ocean. <laughs> but essentially, I'm still an advocate for all the different pieces of Marzano's uh, uh, book, that's Building Economic Vocabulary from 2004. I think it's it, it just has so much there that's richness that we talk about in the book. And then uh, the support your objectives uh, from PSYOP is where I really learned about language and content objectives and working with uh, Dr. Short about, you know, having all of those and, and, and uh, uh, Dr. Echeverria with the structure of just having those. And I think, uh, Another person who's great about that, that you may want to have on somebody, Kate Kinsella's work with structuring language is, is really nice with it. Writing with that down. Those specific, uh, those specific content and language objectives. Let's move to step six. Um, have students participate in structured conversations. You love your QSSA, QSSA. And it's funny because that's the only one we put in there in the original book was that one step and kept it short because I said, I don't want them to do all those stuff in the back. We have like 30 great activities in the back of the book. But if you don't get this one, it's question, signal, stem, share, assess. And uh, Bill Perryman and I, the co-author, we worked so hard in watching these teachers and trying to narrow it down to what is essential. And you ask an open-ended question, you provide a response signal, that's the question, signal, stem, share, assess. You do a sentence starter, question, signal, stem, share, you have them share with a, with a partner and the assess is either randomize or rotate or have the kids write something down. So you're either gonna randomize, rotate or write. So they're gonna call on the kids after, they, uh, after they've had this opportunity to participate in a conversation. And uh, I really, I would say for this one, we could talk about it a long time. Maybe I'll come back because we we're actually doing a whole book on QSSA because Dr. Montre Rogers, she did her dissertation and studied uh, the use of QSSA in a, in a campus in, in, in uh, uh, in, uh, in a district here in Texas. And wow. she looked at a, a campus here in Texas that she studied and, and right. saw the implementation of it. And it was fantastic. And what, what you find is it really, it just works. It gets kids included and participating. Have you used it, Ton? I'm curious. I what have. With with your I have. Yeah, I use it with my fifth graders. I'll say like, um, here are the sentence stems. Here's my question. Here's my sentence stem. When you have uh, your answer, put your hands on your, put your hand by your chest. Um, and go like this. And if sometimes I'll say, how many answers do you have? And they'll have like three answers or two answers, right? And then those, that's my signal. And then they'll turn and talk and I'll walk and I'll listen to their responses. And the thing that I do with my kids when the QSSA, I say, when I pick on a student, the kid is not supposed to answer, giving their answer. They're supposed to give their partner's answer. Oh, that's fantastic. Right. Yeah, it builds community so well. Right, exactly. And do you let them know in advance that they're gonna do that? Yes, they all know. Yeah, yeah so yes. when I call on kids, they never give their answer. They always say, oh yes, I talked to John and this is what John said. I, I made that mistake before <laughs> of not telling the kids, I'm gonna ask you what your partner said and then they're not listening for that. And then they're like, you weren't listening to me. And you're like, you create all this chaos. It's drama. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you create you create drama. Yeah, I've done that before. Where you, but when you tell them in advance, it's, it's awesome because it builds such a sense of community. Right, right. This is the last step before we talk about the research. Uh, step seven is half students participate in structured reading and writing activities. Uh, so we have some examples there, but this is the place where it's more important that you do it than 
the how you do it. Because right. what I have seen, in, when I'm looking at like uh, the different models for uh, reading and writing, and, and again, we're talking about uh, language acquisition here. So that what the, the, we're thinking about in math and science and social studies and language arts classes throughout the day, consistently providing opportunities for uh, structured reading and structured writing. So that we're, we're it's not so much about uh, a particular methodology as it is consistently providing the opportunities. Because seven steps is not a, uh, it's more about what do we do to give kids the gift of language acquisition by developing these habits throughout the day rather than uh, a specific uh, idea of, of a particular approach. So what we, what we really have there is if I'm teaching one of these courses like, or a lesson in an elementary class of I'm teaching a science class, what does it look like to have kids consistently writing and reading? And I say consistently, I mean every lesson. So it's not just uh, an occasional thing. It's as, you, as you've heard, I'm sure Todd, it's writing to learn and reading to learn. Uh, I had uh, my daughter's home from college this summer and she's uh, doing this uh, film class, uh, the history of film and she's writing this paper. And she said the other day, she's like, I'm, I'm learning so much writing this. And I was like, oh yes, yes. I love this picture thing. I kind of always want to watch some of these films with her. They're just amazing. You're like, well, look at this, what is this? Well, this is something, something. And you're like, they're interesting, like old movies and whatnot. But when she wrote it, she learned it. Yes. It wasn't just, it, it's where she's actually learning by writing. And I know that like, uh, when I the, the, when I had to write uh, for the graduate class I was taking, where I had to write in Spanish, you know, thank gracias a Dios for all relatives and friends with the editing, right? But I learned so much about the structure of the language yes. and por lo tanto and all these phrases where transition words that without the actual writing and then the dialogue about my writing, I never would have developed those things. Right. Um, it's a you know it's not just the writing; it's the dialogue about the writing and. It's not just the reading, it's the dialogue about the reading that really helps to really develop that language and just getting your feet wet. And it's, it's, it's about providing those experiences throughout the day. So it's not an occasional thing. It's just this thing that's happening all the time. So now what has the research said? Sorry, sorry. So you've done research on these seven steps. What has it, uh, what have you found? Well, we started a study uh, working with uh, Dr. Goldman in, uh, uh, looking at a, a three-year study of the seven steps. And we just took like every district, we started off with all the districts that are implementing and then we narrowed it down through a set of criteria to find people who had been implementing recently over the past three year, for a few years. And then until we really, really narrowed it down to uh, really five districts and then we had one dropout. So now we're down to, to four districts, right? That had enough consistent implementation over time that we could really look at it. So uh, the first phase was, was to take uh, one district with, uh, consistent implementation and look at what were the effects of that we compared the high implementation and then also uh, teachers who were were, were, were were not implementing the seven steps and tried to see how did they do on both uh, uh, math assessment, which in Texas, our state Texas test is called the star and every state uh, in America has their own thing. You know, you may have park, <laughs> you may have uh, best or yes. standards they have over there in in, in, in Florida, they have uh, their standards that we have the TEKS in Texas, but it's basically an assessment of our, of our, of our, uh, of, of our, of our standards is the STAR test. So we looked at it for math and reading for sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And then uh, we also looked at uh, 
uh, TELPASS, which is our, our, our language assessment, very similar to like ELPA 21 or uh, WIDA, where you're looking at how do, how do students perform uh, in terms of growth on TELPASS. And so we looked at both of those things. And what we found was that uh, at the sixth, seventh and eighth grade levels, that students with seven steps instruction and coaching significantly outperformed the students without in sixth, seventh and eighth grade levels on TELPASS reading and math. Wow. And fascinatingly, math was where we had the biggest impact. And the other thing was that the longer they were in seven steps classes, the higher, the longer the effect was on the student. So that oh. if a student had it sixth, seventh and eighth grade, the effect in eighth grade was larger than it was if they had it sixth and seventh grade, which is larger than it was in sixth grade. So the effects were cumulative over time. And this is just the first year of our study. And uh, we presented that at uh, uh, AERA uh, this, this year, uh, which was really challenging in the online environment with all the things that were going on. And thought, oh, the year we're presenting, we don't get to go, right? I really wanted to go and, and see uh, all this. So maybe, maybe uh, in a couple of years, we're going to have, we're, probably not going to publish the second year results this year. We're gonna wait till we get all three years. And when we finish the entire study, we're gonna publish the other results because the next phase we're looking at uh, breaking it down to try to look at specific steps. And we're gonna to try to look at uh, the, the teacher level of, of uh, and we're also gonna look at teacher self-assessment and compare that with an observer assessment. Like are teachers able to self-assess their implementation? And does their self-assessment correlate with student performance? We have a bunch of other questions we're looking at. Um, but the good news was what we've known anecdotally all along, <laughs> I've known for years from anecdotally that we really had this controlled study and, the, and with the data available you know, publicly where people can look at it, that's uh, now been uh, reviewed so that we can really look at it and see that if teachers want to build kids uh, English learners content knowledge, right and they want to build students uh, language knowledge, then using the seven steps is something that will, well, let's say language acquisition rather than language knowledge, but if they want the kids to grow in their language, language proficiency and in, in performance on content area assessments, the seven steps should be a tool in their toolbox to do that. I wrote or down the- It's not the only, there are other ones. It can be a tool in your toolbox. I just wrote down, I have wrote down six, seven, eight, and I circled the word consistency. If teachers were using this consistently throughout all their classes, kids are going to really benefit. And then I drew an arrow back to the word leadership. When you first started, talked about leadership. This is what teachers in schools can do. They could bring this book in and share with teachers. There are ways that we can create a system to help kids going from social studies class to math class, to science class, to art class, to drama, because language is the language English is the language they're using to teach or sometimes Spanish. And we can use these. Your seven steps is not a program. It's no. an instructional lens. It's the yeah. way we see and design our instruction to make it inclusive, scaffolded and equitable. Oh, I really love that. We never use the word program. Yes, it's never. We, we occasionally in the research use the word model, but I don't really think of it as a model because we don't have a lesson plan template. Right. We don't have... Uh, we don't tell you time on task with instruction. It doesn't do all those things. It's a set of practices that equitably promote language acquisition. It's not, you're right. It can slide into a lot of different models, of, uh, a lot of different models. Right. So it's very flexible and it's not uh, prescriptive. So that's what I really appreciate about it. Well, John, let's end the podcast with this uh, traffic light teaching. What is something that you ask teachers to stop doing, Red? 
yellow, what is something you ask teachers to start doing? Kind of like when you get to a yellow light, you start slowing down. And then a green light, what is something you ask teachers to keep doing? I think uh, one thing that I would ask teachers to, if we started with a, with a negative one, with the stop doing is, I would ask teachers to stop being afraid of calling on students. Yes. Don't be afraid to include kids. I was telling my kids just a story yesterday about this uh, young man named Casey, who when we very first started inclusion uh, in the nineties and I was teaching and we had the, he was, uh, had several palsy. He was reading on a first grade level and he was included in my eighth grade history class. And I was uh, randomly calling on students and I was so scared. Skipping him, on. yes. So I worked with him, I said, and he talked with a really loud, deep voice. He would say, may I please have some more information? It was so serious, but I started including Casey in my, in my class and I started calling on Casey using these uh, you know, sticks and he would say it. And then I would, I would pair him up. Like if we were partners, I would do groups of three so that you know, there would be dialogue there. And I would tell them, you know, if Casey wants to talk, let him talk. And I would call on him and he would, we would practice talking with him and he would respond. But the coolest thing was, and it really freaked me out was I was a sponsor for the junior historians. And we used to do these plays called Legends of Wilson County at the Wilson County Courthouse. And the kids would find local legends. So you probably don't know Texas, but there's something called the Chupacabra, which is this goat sucker that it, it's a Texas thing, right? It's a local <laughs> legend. And these kids actually saw a Chupacabra in Wilson County that actually attacked their cows. This is the story they did. So they wanted to do the Chupacabra. So it's a local legend. They were doing their Chupacabra story skit, but here's what happened. Casey shows up to junior historians and I was terrified. I'm like, how am I gonna conclude him in all of this? How am I going to do this? So put him in the small group and he works with these kids on this. And I, I remember going to the courthouse and to do the, the, we would do these plays in front of the courthouse at the, right. at the peanut festival in Floresville. And my wife was there helping me get everything set up and they were there and then they, they had, uh, they were doing this, this little play and he was inside the tent and I had the kids mic'd, but you can't hear these kids. They don't talk loud and stuff. And this kid comes walking across the stage in his homemade chupacabra costume. And then Casey comes out of the tent and he was supposed to be one of these kids. He's wearing like a Boy Scout uniform. And he comes out and he's like, it's a chupacabra. Ah! And he screamed, everybody started screaming. Like the people were so surprised that he talked so loud and he just did the part perfectly. And, his, and I saw his parents and his mom just had tears in her eyes because oh. participating. Yes. And I just think about this. I found out later that in another person's class, uh, she had shared with me that the, 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 the life skills teacher had told me that in her class, she said, what, is he, what are you doing in your class that's helping Katie to be included? Why is he participating in your class? And oh. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. Can you just come watch? And she came and watched and she didn't know what I was doing. But I, you know, I really think it started with that seven steps of the randomly calling on and including him and writing a scaffold. Because in his other class, she said he was sitting back and forth, rocking back and forth, making grunting sounds. Oh. I just had to remove him from the room. And so I just think about his mom and then the play. And this is an opportunity that the other kids had to fully include somebody that, that I had to see him included, that his parents had, that these structures matter. Yes. 
that it's not just about him wanting to try. It's about creating uh, a little ladder and a bridge to say, here's how you can, it's about knocking down a wall. I like in that image they've got, knocking down a wall so that we, we don't just have equity, we've got justice, you're a part of this. Right, it's these, these strategies, these seven steps say, I see you and you're a part of the community and you're welcome to be part of it. Exactly. And then you give them so ways to be there. Exactly, and that's my stop. Stop thinking, get, they get, stop avoiding calling on kids. You find a way to include that kid that's not a part of it. Right. And I guess my second, what would they get the-, the uh, Start doing. The, the something that uh, I, I, I think teachers should start doing is, and this is something that is start creating opportunities for kids to use their own, their own uh, forms of language yes. and their own structures of language. We have a lot of activities in the seven steps book, including the ones in the back. And some of them are like letter writing, uh, things like that, which can be genres where kids can, can write and journal and where it doesn't all have to be in formal academic English. So start finding opportunities to honor the variety of cultures and language that kids are bringing to the table. Are you getting teary eyed? A little. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> I think Casey did, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. Casey did. Because really, it really does mean, it's not just about language development or content acquisition. When you're talking about kids like Casey, you're saying uh, it's really an equity thing because other classes, he's not, he doesn't want to be there. But when he's in your class, he, he sees himself the way you see him. Yes. And I got to tell you, Tom, uh, I don't think it's so simple that we get the right attitude, then change the practices. Yes. I think it's a mix because I honestly didn't have the attitude when he came in. I was scared because he had recently had surgeries and he was having trouble walking and he couldn't take his book out of his bag. And then I asked him to take his book out of his bag and he threw it on the floor. And I was just, I didn't know, I didn't know how I'm gonna include him. And I was scared of Casey and his effect on my classroom. But I was committed to, I'm gonna call on him. I'm gonna provide these structures. I'm gonna provide these opportunities. And I'm gonna I'm gonna do this for him. He had something called an Alpha Smart, which is like this little thing that he would write in that he'd pull out that he would, he would write in for do his warm ups. And uh, the first, I said, okay, Casey, go ahead and do your warm up. And he was just sitting there. And I said, you need to take out your book and go ahead and do your warm up. And he was just sitting there. And then I said, okay, Casey, I think your Alpha Smart is in your bag, so take it out and put it on your. And he reached and grabbed it and threw it on the floor. And I said, can you go ahead and pick it up? And he reached over, picked it up, put it on his desk. And then he started writing and I said, just copy it. All I want you to do is copy the directions in here for now using Alpha Smart. So about a, a few weeks later, his life skills teacher asked me, how did you teach him to use the Alpha Smart? And I said, oh my gosh, he didn't know how to use the Alpha Smart. But my thing was, I mean, I would have shown him if, I, if it had turned it on. I think I did help him turn it on the first time. But she said, we were just teaching him how to carry it around. And it was just that, like, my thing was, if you're here, you're going to be included. Right. And that's going to be right. And if you have this tool to write, you're going to be a part of this, right? And so it didn't end with him, you know, doing this at the county, county courthouse. But the, 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 the play that we did, I mean, it was how it ended up. But, but it starts with just, you're in my classroom. And then as I saw him doing, my sense of what he could do grew. And when he came to junior historians the first time, I was kind of scared. How is he going to participate in junior historians? What are we going to do? But then it was, okay, I can't just live in fear. I have to live in a place of love where this is somebody who I'm going to, and that's a choice. And sometimes the feelings and all of the, 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 the energy will come after I make the choice of I'm going to engage in these practices. And when I engage in these practices in the community can develop. 
and their confidence would develop. Exactly. And you, I think he, when I saw this little imagery in my head, he borrowed your confidence. Oh, that's great, Ton. Yes. He borrowed, he borrowed confidence. our confidence in them. Yeah. Yes. And, and then then we had that experience before where right. someone had confidence in us. Yes. And that's all. I'm but getting right. chills. Right. And I'm getting chills because it's really about, I always tell teachers, we seek participation before perfection. That's exactly it. Yes. Right. Yeah. Participation before <sighs> perfection. That's really good. Yeah. Just let's, let's do it first. Right. You have nothing to analyze if you haven't right. actually done something right. here first. Right. Yeah. Right. Just, just do it first. Right. And then we'll, we'll, we'll try to improve right. it. Right. And then we let go of the judgment. Yeah. yeah. Right. We yeah. just do yeah. it. So what's your green? What's my green is my green is something I feel a lot of passion about, which is ask questions that you don't know how kids are going to answer, that you're honestly curious. I've heard it called the thinker's pose, which is like, you know, the the Rodin with the little fist on the chin thing. I'm going to try to ask an open-ended question as often as I can, maybe not daily, but certainly as often as I can, where I don't know what you're going to say and I could learn from you. Oh, and I could actually learn from my kids. I remember one time when I, was, I taught when I was teaching it, I keep everything comes from Florida, right? But I was teaching out there and I was talking, we were talking about slavery and this uh, kid had said about what the student, uh, Kelly Atkins had said that there was slavery still in, uh, in uh, Sudan. And she was talking about this and I didn't sure. honestly know a lot about it. And don't point fingers at me. This was when we were just learning about this at the time, right? It was something kind of new and she'd seen something on TV and so, because uh, I had an open-ended question where the kids could really share freely from their own experiences, right? So she was experiencing something she'd seen on television about slavery and what was going on with the conflict with, uh, in uh, Sudan and what she'd seen on television. So I just let her talk about it. And she talked about it for like three minutes and then she talked to me about it at the end of the day. So I ended up calling this guy uh, uh, who was on TV named Francis Bob and I invited him to come to our campus. And he came to our campus and shared about, he was, uh, a part of the slave redemption program that involved the American Anti-Slavery Society that had existed since before the Civil War. And it still is around, American Anti-Slavery Society. And, and now he's written a book called, uh, I think it's called Escape to Freedom, but it's by Francis Bach, uh, B-O-K, it's the last name. But he came and he shared with the kid, with our students, with our whole eighth grade about his experience. Wow. And then they did, uh, we did then some, uh, uh, like a fundraiser through the junior historians and as a student council sponsor called Slavery Then and Now. And we just, where they did things and a kid performed Billy Holiday singing a strange fruit. I mean, it was phenomenal. This whole thing that happened uh, and we raised money, we charged, overcharged for it. Like we charged a ridiculous amount, like 15 bucks to come, but the parents paid because the kids are going to be performing. We had artwork and we did a scene from Uncle Tom's Cabin, different kinds of things that happened. And then uh, we, uh, all the money we used to help for the slave redemption program. And what I, now I'm not, every time I opened up a space for conversation, that didn't happen. That did not happen every time. Right. But sometimes it did. Right. I had a student who one time challenged my thinking about civil disobedience. And I went to the library and this is before Google, right? <laughs> so I went to the library, but I reread Thoreau and I, I reread King and God, I had to think about it because what she said shook me. It was like, Whoa, I won't get into all the details of it because I talked too much already. But I, she, I'm sitting there standing on duty and this girl, Melissa is walking by and 
I said to her, you know what you said in class yesterday? It really made me think. Yes. Uh, and then I asked her about, I just said, I looked at this and she said, oh my gosh, you were listening? Yes. <laughs> so, and then for a few minutes I said, Here, I said, I, I, here's what I'm thinking about this. What do you think about this? And then she immediately got back into her Melissa self and started arguing, dialoguing right there while I'm on duty. And I hope the kids were safe, right? Because <laughs> I'm on bus duty. But it was one of those things where like, uh, asking questions about literature and about history, about science and about how kids think about math, uh, asking questions where I wanna know what you're thinking because I have something to learn from you. Oh, yes. I don't know your culture. I don't know your background. I don't know everything about you. I don't know your life experiences. I don't know how you're reading this text. I don't know what you're bringing to the table. So I might be you know, 50 years old and have some jaded experiences, but I can learn from a 12 year old because I'm not 12 and I haven't been in your shoes and I, I don't have your life. And through dialogue, I'm not gonna understand perfectly. And, and you know, there's not gonna be perfect empathy. That's kind of an illusion, but I can grow yes. and I can change. Right. And, I, and, and I, I, I can at least develop uh, some understanding and create we, community and space for you to talk. And we understand by asking open-ended questions, but just by asking questions yes. with kids. Well, John, you said earlier in the interview that we stand in the in the shadow of giants like Dr. Jana Chavaria and her colleagues. Well, let me say this about you. We stand in your light. Oh, thank you. And with your light, with your company, with I really don't think your company as a company, I really think of it as an advocacy organization. You're advocating for Francisco. Oh, right? thank you. Right. You're advocating for kids. We do all of this for kids just like Francisco. And who's the kid that did you have Posey? What's his name again? Casey. Yes. We do this for Casey. Right. And so thank you for helping us not be in the shadow, but be in the light and helping us see in a different way. Now you are making me tear up, Don. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll stop the podcast there. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. The seven steps are practices that invite students to participate, to develop their language skills and to learn content. But there are so much more to these seven steps. They offer a way for students to borrow our confidence in them. The confidence comes from low-risk opportunities that are structured and scaffolded. With participation comes equity. The best part about the seven steps is that it is not a program or a curriculum. It's a way we see lesson facilitation. I hope that these steps support you in your advocacy work with multilingual students. In the next podcast, we'll start our culturally responsive instruction series with Dr. Deanne Sterfetter 
and Dr. Sydney Snyder. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play traffic light teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Never do